This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical or legal advice. Always follow your local policies, procedures, and protocols when functioning in your respective profession. Additionally, the views expressed by the speakers and owners of this podcast are their own and do not represent the views of their respective employers. Listener discretion is advised. Alert Medic 1 response. Ken, Josh, and Mustafa here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic 1 podcast. There we go. Okay. Let's try this again. So. What's up, buddy? What's up? Uh, Pre-hospital blood. Yeah. Pre-hospital blood is what is up. Yeah. Uh, So, uh, I thought we should uh, talk about this topic. Uh, It's going to be coming up more and more uh, in other podcasts around the world, around the nation. It's going to be coming up in protocol. It's going to be coming up in research. So, pre-hospital blood, you know, uh, what's this cool new fancy thing? Well, it's not cool and it is cool sorry i take that back it's really cool but it's not new uh pre-hospital or just blood transfusions uh blood product transfusions have been a thing for centuries uh dating back to the 1600s when they first started trying to figure it out it's been refined over the centuries um and and what we'll say our recent history uh we'll look back into the 20th century turn of the 20th century when um Blood products were being transfused on a battlefield in World War II starting. Uh, might have been in World War One, but mostly World War II is where it started, where they were hanging units of plasma. Uh, they were giving blood in the field hospitals um, and then transitioning into Vietnam, more blood product transfusions. And now we're looking in our current military situation uh, with transfusing whole blood at the site of injury. And where does that fall in our ems because that's the military they kind of there's some rules that exist and don't exist in the military make certain procedures that might be quote-unquote new age or cutting edge a little bit easier to um do and uh establish um but we do take a lot of what we're going to do in ems from these studies from these trials and uh so whole blood that's, that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, there's other blood products that can be done, um, but we're not going to get into that because whole blood is the, you know, the um, the premier resuscitation fluid in mm-hmm. the field for uh, hypovolemia from a traumatic source. Well, I what I always think about is mash. Uh, you know, was that Korean War? Yes. Right. Uh, the they you know there's you know that that's what I think about when I think of blood transfusion. I, it's really interesting that they you know, they started it during World War Two. Yeah. So, whole blood. Um, just like a kind of a basic overview on it. Um, so we've all heard of blood types. Uh, I'm a positive moose. Do you know what you are? B positive. B positive. Um, so you may or may not know your type. Uh, it's also called your group. Uh, there's blood group slash type. They're kind of interchangeable. Um, the most common ones are going to be your A positive negative. Uh, B positive and negative, AB positive and negative, and O positive and negative. Uh, so there are some other types out there, but they're so um, uncommon that we don't really uh, bring them into um, our our basis of a knowledge, especially in EMS. So uh, of those groups and types, um, O positive is about 38% of the population, followed kind of closely by A positive at 34%. And then it rapidly or uh, <coughs> very uh, strongly drops off from there with the next being B positive at 9%. So remember that O positive, 38% of the population. That's going to play into what we talk about with whole blood going forward. Uh, so also some things to think about with whole blood is titers. So you'll hear this uh, acronym or this phrase, low, titer, whole uh, low titer O positive whole blood, L-T-O-W-B. So you'll probably see that in a protocol. You'll probably see it in a paper or some ECE or some training going forward from here. Uh, so that low titer part, why is that so important to be in the acronym and the title for this stuff? 
So that refers to the amount of antibodies. So the amount of that antigen that is around on that blood. Okay. And this fluctuates. It's not a set for your entire life. You know, um, you know, we're shooting for 256, but not everyone's going to be 256. We want to get close to that as possible. Um, and when we have as low as possible, that 256, that's what we're going for. Um, that means there's even less chance of reaction to this blood. Okay. And that'll play into some things we talk about future. So remember these things, O positive, most common, low titer, that low amount of antigen. Uh, and then with whole blood, how, how does it come? It comes in units. It comes in these bags, what we call it a unit of blood. Um, the bags are about 450 to 500 mLs of blood. Uh, the way of filling them uh, is not totally an exact science. Uh, you kind of uh, wrap a specific band around the bag when you get a donor. And when it gets full to a certain point and pops, then that says you're full. Uh, so that's about 450 to 500 mLs of blood in there. Uh, they're stored in refrigeration uh, at all times until given to the patient. Uh, the blood bag that is that they're in contains a citrate that keeps the blood in the bag from clotting. Um, this is going to be important too. You know, remember these pieces that we're talking about: old positive blood, low titer, citrate. Okay, so this citrate is also going to unfortunately aid to some hypocalcemia when you uh, administer. Uh, so we're going to do things to correct that and try and get ahead of that, uh, but we'll talk about it. And these must be administered by a warming device. So remember, these are coming out of refrigeration, regardless of where, where you're getting the blood. You're getting in the hospital. You're getting at the side of the patient on the side of the highway, getting it in the air, wherever. It has been kept at a certain temperature, refrigerated, up until the point that we pull it out and we spike the bag and we administer it. So there's a couple of different options for um, warming. Uh, Alert Medic 1 does not endorse any specific one. Uh, I can personally say I actually don't have any experience outside of a little bit of training with one, uh, but that was many years ago, uh, but we don't endorse any. Uh, we will talk about a couple of the common ones on the market, but uh, that's about it. <clears throat> so why are we doing whole blood versus normal saline and lactate ringers? Moose, do you? I mean, the way I think about it is we should remain as close to the body's baseline physiology as possible and what it's familiar with if we're trying to resuscitate someone. Exactly. So, uh, you know, if you're in touch with social media, uh, which you probably are because you heard about us probably through social media somehow or from a friend, you've probably seen the whole pasta water uh, is bad. Pasta water or Kool-Aid, blood is better, okay? Whatever combination of that, those words, you've probably seen in something, a patch, a sticker, a post, who knows? Uh, well, that's quite simply true. Okay. So like, uh, Moose said, we want to infuse something for our resuscitation that is going to be as close physiologically to the human body as possible. Okay. Um, this is why, and we're not going to get into it really here. This is why we pick lactated ringers over normal saline on most of our other types of resuscitation because it has more factors that are better for the body and closer to physiology. There's some issues with giving massive amounts of normal saline compared to lactating ringers. But overall, the blood is better than both of those. Uh, And part of that is because, uh, so if you've been through EMT school, paramedic school, now dig back there, there should be this thing called the lethal triad that you saw during the trauma module. Um, this is a lethal triad or triangle, uh, and it's a triangle and it's got three things on it. It's going to have your, uh, hypothermia, acidosis, and coagulopathy. Okay. So that's a, that's a mouthful on the last one. We're going to take that triangle and we're going to add another point to it. We're going to make it a diamond. Okay. And we're going to add hypocalcemia on one of those legs because we're finding that this is a more prevalent thing than we thought. Um, so we're going to be working to fix these things by giving blood and what doesn't fix these things, except for one part, very minorly is normal saline lactating ringers. The only thing that we can do with that, that will fix one of these legs is warm that fluid. And that'll help with the hypothermia, um, trauma and hypothermia, bad mix. 
very very bad um but we can try and fix that with some warm warmed uh lactated ringers or normal saline but it's not going to fix our hypocalcemia or acidosis or coagulopathy so whole blood whole blood is red blood cells that have all the uh, components that they need all in one bag those red blood cells when we talk about acidosis are going to help with that gas exchange that is going to pick up that co2 and get it to the lungs and get it out okay so if we are giving a fluid that does not have red blood cells there's nothing we can do to take that co2 that is getting trapped and sitting stagnant out in our uh periphery uh and changing that acidosis yeah the only thing i want to say with that is a lot of folks may not know uh o2 doesn't dissolve well into plasma but co2 does right so uh when we talk about perfusion for example what are we talking about we're talking about the transfer of gases at the air uh, blood interface right at the lung uh and it's critical that we have a fluid that does both well and does uh both without contributing to hypothermia so uh, to the patient's overall temperature. So I'll give it back to you. I just wanted to say that one yeah. quick point. Um, so so that's how we're going to take care of acidosis. Now, how are we going to take care of coagulopathy? So right back to normal saline lactin ringers. It is salt water. It has no, absolutely zero ability to help in clotting. Uh, so it's it's not going to carry those factors that part of the whole, whole clotting cascade that is so vital to stopping this this, this bleeding of some sort. Uh, but the whole blood does. So uh, getting that in gets new factors in from a already depleted system and starts getting that clotting going again. Um, so we talked about hypocalcemia and how whole blood giving whole blood may hinder that okay so it is something we need to consider so most protocols out there say that with your first unit of blood you want to give one gram of calcium Uh, and that is because of the citrate okay that's what we know for a fact Um, while uh, there is some studies going on that because we're giving blood there's been massive hemorrhage there's been a lot of blood loss so from what we know, there's also going to be a lot of calcium loss in that blood that has been exsanguinated from the body. Uh, so give that calcium for the citrate, but we're starting to find maybe give that calcium for the blood loss too in general. Uh, some uh, There is a study out there now called the Clinical Assessment of Low Calcium and Trauma. Calcium. Uh, it's a, it's funny how they come up with these crazy unique names for these trials. You know, um, airways. Uh, part, uh, calcium. Uh, so uh, it's one to look for. It is. It was just dropped back in a second week of January, I believe. So they are still collecting the data. They're looking for, uh, if I remember correctly, about 900 patients uh, You know that are severe hemorrhage, uh, looking at their calcium levels prior to blood administration, after blood administration, um, looking for approximate blood loss numbers so they can figure out, okay, does a certain amount of blood lost from the body correlate to a certain calcium level? And do we need to just give calcium from the, uh, from the get-go regardless if we're giving blood or not? Because if they're low on calcium, our whole resuscitation is going to be hindered. Okay. Um, so, uh, adverse reactions. So this is something that comes up a lot when people want to bring up blood. They're like, well, what about transfusion reactions? It's a horrible thing. If it happens, they're going to die. You know, and I, that might be a little bit of severe reaction um, to talking about transfusion reactions. There are uh, a handful of them. Uh, the, uh, the, wow. Basically, the protocols for U.S. Army flight medics outline four, or I mean, sorry, take it back, seven different type of reactions. Uh, most people like to focus on the anaphylactic and the hemolytic transfusion reaction, but there's also um, one called febrile non-hemolytic transfusion reaction, uh, tro- <sighs> transfusion-related acute lung injury, trolley, 
transfusional volume circulatory overload, TACO, uh, mechanical cause uh, hemolysis, and transfusion transmitted bacterial infection. Uh, so our big ones that we like to uh, focus a lot of our attention on because they are the most common out of some very uncommon reactions is going to be your anaphylaxis and your acute hemolytic transfusion reaction. Uh, so your anaphylaxis uh, is going to be your, just like we've all been taught, uh, you're going to start seeing uh, shock, hypotension, some angioedema, respiratory distress. Uh, with this, you're going to stop your transfusion. You're going to start fluids, start running fluids at a bolus rate, give epi as needed, and follow your anaphylaxis protocol. Uh, your acute hemolytic transfusion, you're going to see a, a fever, chills, flank pain, and if you're monitoring uh, urine output, some red-brown urine. Um, once again, stop the transfusion, open it up with saline, identify what causes and treat that. Uh, if it's an acute hemolytic reaction, uh, just giving fluids is going to help in the short term. Uh, these patients are going to need to get Rogam in the end, uh, which is something no EMS service is going to be carrying. And once Rogam is given, their chances of uh, coming out the other side uh, on the positive end are greatly increased. Um, for the taco trolley, other ones we can put in the show notes, uh, some stuff to look for with that. But like I said, these are going to be your even more uncommon uh, reactions in an already uncommon situation. Uh, to give you some numbers on your likelihood of a uh, hemolytic reaction, and I'm going to give a shout out to Coffee Break uh, Hems podcast. Uh, this is where I got this from. Uh, he recently did an episode on hemolytic reactions and how it's maybe not so much something to be worried about. It's it's not as common as we might think. So uh, remember how we said that uh, 38% of people are O positive. Well, 85% of all humans in the world are RH positive. So that is, they have a blood type that has a positive antigen on it. So already 85%, that's, that's, that's a lot. So that already means our chance of this happening is very unlikely. 15% is RH negative. Um, and then is it worth the risk? Okay. So just had to get my bearings here for a second. So when we look at the numbers worldwide, about 20% of blood transfusions go to women. Okay, and this is where our highest likelihood of transfusion reaction is going to be. So uh, the reason is uh, men do stupid stuff. Uh, we usually are the are the most likely uh, gender to um, get injured in a traumatic way, um, and that's just the stats. Uh, so twenty percent of all transfusions will go to women. Seventy percent of those are of childbearing age. So we're, we're, we're breaking ourselves down to more. So this is roughly about 14% of the world's population is at risk. Okay. Cause we, like we said, the most, the highest chance of reaction is going to be in females of childbearing age. So of that 14%, 15% of those women are going to be RH negative. So that's now down to 2% are at risk of a hemolytic reaction. And then on top of that, uh, 13% of them will have, a, so 13% of them are at risk for developing RH negative or RH positive antibodies from this transfusion reaction. Because just because you gave RH positive blood to an RH negative person doesn't mean that they're going to develop RH positive blood. Okay. So only 13% of that previous 2% are going to develop these antibodies, which is 0.27% at risk. So when you look at it, is it more beneficial to give the blood than have someone die from massive hemorrhage? Uh, and the numbers say give the blood, uh, because also on top of it, once you give Rogam, uh, it becomes a 0.027% chance of someone having a very negative uh, outcome from RH positive blood. I, I think the numbers say it's a good idea to give the blood. Sure. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, so the South Texas Blood and Tissue Center, which uh, plays into uh, how whole blood has come into EMS, as we'll talk about in a moment, estimates only about uh, that if we do not give women of childbearing age O positive blood, more than 
500 women would die every year from massive blood loss. If we just say, you know, well, we just can't give it to childbearing women. And so I don't think we're willing to accept those numbers. I definitely am not. Um, and the ultimate question is, are we more concerned about the 500 women that survive compared to the possible two out of every thousand ICU immunization related deaths? So uh, that also has a treatment. It's not like there's no yes, treatment. Right exactly. Here. There is a treatment. Um, and there, there's plenty of evidence on how to uh, the course of treatment that these patients would receive for life. You know, uh, not saying that they're going to be afflicted for life, but if they are, there's plenty of data on how to treat them. So we've covered the background of whole blood, the reactions, um, why we're using this over uh, normal saline and lactated ringers. Now, how does it factor into EMS? So uh, this is still a very new thing in uh, pre-hospital care. Uh, there may have been a couple... Uh, helicopter agencies elsewhere in the United States that was using blood products, but it was very rare. Uh, in 2017 is when everything changed. So in 2017, the American Association of Blood Bankers uh, lifted the restriction on usage of low titer O group whole blood, so LTOWB, just like I said before, that wonderful acronym. When that happened, uh, Harris County ESD number 48 down in Texas decided we're going to be the first one and they brought EMS to the patient side or brought whole blood to the patient side. Um, San Antonio, which is just North of Harris County, uh, followed suit in 2018 and is now the main pioneer of whole blood in EMS, uh, because they're a large Metro department that figured out how to supply this and use it appropriately to some great effect. Uh, in San Antonio, uh, the way they uh, are running this is they keep it on duty officer vehicles and um, medic units that are within their uh, special operations uh, division. Uh, and they are slowly expanding it. Uh, as of today, the 3rd of March, I, I didn't see any numbers of what that expansion looks like right now, but they are expanding it as they get the funding. So, Moose? I'm good. No, 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 this is good. This is all really interesting. I didn't know any of this. Uh, so... The next hurdle after uh, hemolytic and adverse reactions to whole blood, people say is, well, how are you gonna how are you gonna get it in the field? Like, where are you gonna get it? Like, blood's expensive. You know, they're always talking about there's blood shortage here and blood shortage there. Um, so, I'm gonna talk about how San Antonio does it in uh, maybe a little bit more of a broad way, uh, not their uh, like each individual call uh, specifics. And then how this could be implemented in a uh, metro slash suburban department in Maryland. Uh, since we do have that protocol, but it is a pilot protocol, and uh, you kind of have to figure it out on your own on how you're going to implement it. He, you know, Maryland said, here is the baseline of when to give it. Now you guys figure out in your own agencies how you want to do this. So San Antonio. Um, in San Antonio, their blood is on a 35-day life cycle. Uh, they partner with the South Texas or Southwest Texas uh, Tissue or Blood and Tissue Clinic or Center. Stumbling over my words there. Um, so they get blood from them from a specific program. That program is called Heroes in Arms. It used to be called Brothers in Arms, but has changed its name since uh, because it's no longer uh, specific to men. And it's no longer specific to public safety as the donation donators. Uh, so the Southwest Texas Regional Advisory Committee, or STRAC, partnered with the South Texas Blood and Tissue Center to create this unique donation system. Initially, uh, it was only open to public safety, uh, both police and fire, where they uh, said, hey, we want to do this program. We want to supply our own blood. Uh, we don't want to have to buy blood that could be used by other agencies from south texas blood and tissue uh so they went out to these two communities the police and fire and said if you want to get tested and figure out what type of blood you are let's go ahead with that and those that were identified as o positive uh, were then brought in for tighter levels and those that are identified as uh, preferred donor donors are then put on a schedule to donate two to three times a year uh, this program using just the police and fire was self-sustaining. Uh, its success and its um, 
positive outcomes have driven them to open it up to the community. And they have also found and decided that they are allowing any women that wish to donate O positive blood to come and donate O positive blood as long as they have not had a child. That is their one stipulation. Um, and then, so yeah, that's why it's become Heroes in Arms. So they take that blood and they bring it back to San Antonio Fire uh, as long as, as well as a couple other uh, agencies, both ground and helicopter in Bear County and the surrounding districts of uh, San Antonio. And it's on a 35-day life cycle, like I said before. So days 1 through 15 are spent uh, with those ground and HEMS units. So what they do is they supply this O-positive blood. It is held in a uh, very well-regulated laboratory-style refrigerator at the stations that this blood is being carried on, the units of that station. Uh, So they have a stockpile in there, and every day they swap out the blood that is in the unit, which is in what is called a golden hour container. So a golden hour container, uh, some may have seen them as uh, what they transport organs in, these are containers that are manufactured and regulated to a point that they know that these will hold a certain temperature for upwards of 24 to 48 hours. Um, the technology with this has advanced since this has been implemented. Uh, this, this whole thing was implemented in San Antonio in 2018. Um, and there are a bunch of different manufacturers out there. There is even one that is uh, that has developed a refrigerator that does not lose its ability to refrigerate due to vibration and movement that can be placed on a unit and it's powered. So you don't have just a cooler, it's actually powered, it keeps it at a certain temperature the whole time. Um, and those have been started to be implemented in a couple of different agencies in Texas. So uh, first 15 days, it's with the unit, replaced every 24 hours on the unit. Days 16 through 35 are then sent back to specific trauma centers within San Antonio. And they studied Hey, is this uh, is this being implemented, implemented correctly? Are we doing the right um, time frames? Is it you know are we wasting a lot? And they found that they had a between a one and two percent wastage oh. of the blood in the program. So if it wasn't getting used in the field, it was getting used in the trauma center. Um, and uh, so was this only uh, this is only O positive? Yes, right. Okay. It's only O positive. Uh, we're, they're not doing, and no one that I know of, because the logistics of the other option are astronomical. The other option would be cross-matching people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the the issues with cross-matching someone in the field is, one, um, the options for doing it in the field are not as definitive as sending blood off to a lab. Mm-hmm. Um, the, there's something called an Eldon card where you can take a basically a, a lancet like you would use with a glucometer, mm-hmm. prick someone's blood, uh, and put it on four different circles. The way it um, scatters on those and dries tells you what kind that they most likely are. Unfortunately, it's kind of up to um, user interpretation a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and it's not a fast method. So if you have a tra- trauma patient that needs blood now mm-hmm. and you want to cross-match them, it's going to take you probably three to five minutes to figure out which blood. And now here's the logistic hurdle. Do you carry a unit of each type of blood? Mm, That's yeah. a lot of blood. That's a lot of blood. Then the donors for that pool are going to be even more limited or it's going to be more difficult to manage, you know, a lot more wastage in mm. a uh, cross-match system compared to O positive, which as we said in the beginning, 38% of the population is O positive. So that's a lot of donors. And then on top of it, 85% of all humans are uh, RH positive. So uh, to kind of jump back a little bit real quick, uh, we didn't say, that, say this at the beginning. Universal donor is O type O blood, primarily O positive. Universal recipient is AB. Um, so when you give someone O positive blood, that means that the that first part, that type, that group O, matches or not matches works with type a group a or group b group a b the positive negative portion of it that's where the antigen is coming into play Mm -hmm. so that we're banking on that this patient is more than likely 
a positive antigen patient because 85% of the population of the world is RH positive. And if they aren't, their reaction to that is not going to be an immediate thing. It'll be, you know, once they've had a couple units or once they get to the hospital and they figure out, oh, they're negative blood. Hey, are, let's look and see if they're having an antigen reaction. Are they starting to develop positive blood? Are they having this reaction? Now let's give Rogam and fix that issue. And like we said, the chances of that are so slim. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wish I, I had the numbers in front of me. I remember sitting at uh, GEMS 2019. Uh, I went to uh, a lecture from the EMS chief from Harris County, 48, and he was given on blood. And he put up the numbers from Vietnam. Uh, I, if I remember correctly, the numbers of transfusions in the entire Vietnam conflict were in the, oh, let's say, forty to 50,000 range. The number of reactions was in the sub-100 range. And I would even say probably the sub-50. Mm-hmm. Of all of those rea- of those transfusions mm-hmm. in a conflict, yeah. So it's extremely safe. Yeah. So and just a review. So the universal donor being O negative, but since there's such a small amount of them, it's not practical to have a a, a a critical mass of donors, which is why we're doing O negative to kind of as a Swiss cheese model. They can donate the most, especially because of the RH factor that you're talking about mm-hmm. being potent, not being a non-factor, but being a there's abilities to minimize that to be um, yes. Thanks yeah. for the correction. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's how San Antonio does it, and that kind of correlates to how I think this should work in uh, Maryland. So before we hit on how to logistically do it here, let's just you know hit the protocol real quick. Moose, if you want to talk about the protocol. Uh yeah sure I mean uh hold on. I'll be honest with you, you probably know better than me, but you can keep going. I like this. Uh, so uh, indications, clinical suspicion for major blood loss with evidence of significant physiologic compromise. Uh, so in layman's terms, they lost a lot of blood and they look sick. They're shocky. Okay. Um, clinical suspicion for major blood loss, such as penetrating trauma to the trunk, unstable pelvic fracture, multiple long bone fractures, blunt trauma mechanism, observe major external blood loss, and signs symptoms of massive GI bleed, ruptured aortic aneurysm or ruptured ectopic pregnancy with okay so we need to have a mechanism or nature of illness that is that is our first check okay so uh, we've got the patient that's been shot five times in the chest penetrating trauma to check penetrating trauma to the trunk check okay then we need to look at the physiological compromise okay so age-defined hypotension plus at least one of the following age-defined tachycardia, end title less than 25, positive EFAS exam for those doing uh, point-of-care ultrasound, lactate greater than 4, those of, the, those of you doing point-of-care lactate testing, but if your end title is less than 25, your lactate is probably above 4. So that all kind of ties in. Cap re, uh, refill greater than 3 seconds. Uh, altered sensorium thought not secondary to intoxication or head trauma. So um, if they've got a, I've never seen that word in this protocol, in these protocols, sensorium, but basically they're ultramental and it's not because they've been hit in the head and it's not because they're on uh, any illicit substances or alcohol. So um, they're shocky and they're getting altered. We've all seen that with our uh, sepsis patients. Uh, that's where we see it the most. I feel like they're, no, I shouldn't say that. Never mind. Uh, witness PEA cardiac arrest less than five minutes duration. Uh, so that kind of ties into our whole trauma, our trauma arrest protocol, which couldn't we just say ultra mental status, not secondary to intoxication or head trauma? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so real quick, it also covers your age defined hypotension and age defined, uh, tachycardia, which plays into, uh, your pediatric administration of this, um, there is no age cutoff for blood administration. Okay, there is no contraindication for blood. Um, but age-defined hypertension, age-defined uh, tachycardia. Uh, make sure you guys know that your uh, it's going to be anyone under ten is systolic less than uh, seventy plus two uh, times the year. Um, eight uh, ages ten to sixty-five systolic less than ninety. Ages greater than sixty-five BP less than uh, systolic less than a hundred. 
Um, and absent radial pulses, it doesn't matter what age they are. If they have absent radials, then they qualify. Uh, tachycardia, it's going to be um, age one year, uh, greater than 190. Ages two to four, greater than 140. Ages five to 12, greater than 140. Um, yeah, another one that could have changed. Uh, ages greater than 12, 120. Okay, so remember this is playing into how shock is happening. Okay, so uh, their heart rate is going up because they're trying to pump. Their, the heart is sensing that there's not enough blood, so it must pump faster to get stuff around. But at the same time, because there's nothing, our pressure is dropping. Uh, contraindication, uh, there is an online medical direction for pages, patients under one year of age, but it is not a contraindication. Contraindications are going to be patients receive, uh, indicates refusal to receive blood and medical alert tag indicating patient objection to receiving blood. So this is going to play into uh, religious beliefs or personal beliefs. Um, so make sure you're talking to your patient. If you can, you know, get um, authorization for them to do this. Uh, so uh, the procedure, um, we'll really highlight that. Um, that is... So that's your protocol on it. So how, how are we going to do this in a metro slash suburban Maryland department? There are a numerous ones uh, around the state. Um, and I'm sure there's a couple trying to figure out how are we going to do this? Like there's this is a good idea. It's being done elsewhere. How do we logistically do this? And I think what needs to be done is to uh, emulate the first metro department that did it and is continuing to do it to some great success. And that's going to be San Antonio. So, uh, figure out which agency is going to donate, not donate, sorry, is going to supply blood to the hospitals in your area. Um, and start your partnership with them. Because if you can start that partnership, then you can also get, start figuring out which hospitals are going to receive these patients. Um, that is something that's specific in San Antonio. When they receive blood, they have two trauma centers that they have to go to. It's either uh, Brook Army Medical Center or University uh, Hospital. So those ones are tied into this program so that it the it's a simultaneous loop of care and tracking of the blood and everything. So you figure out which hospitals those are and the um, agency that provides the blood and then get in with them. And then create a program similar to Heroes in Arms uh, or the donation system that's attached to the, attached to the FACTOR program in uh, Northern Virginia. Uh, so uh, Fairfax County, Loudoun, uh, and I believe Alexandria, I'm not sure on Prince William and Arlington, uh, part of the, the cog in, uh, the DC area have this program called factor. Um, it is, uh, bringing blood products to the patient side. Uh, it's not as, um, widespread and in as much use as San Antonio's program, but it is one. And I do know that they have firefighters that donate into it. Um, there was a, uh, article, uh, past year or two of a, um, I think a Loudon battalion chief that his blood was given to a tra uh, trauma patient. Uh, they, they had a story about that. Uh, next step, uh, figure out. Now the next step is to figure out the equipment for storage and administration. So you just got to figure out which refrigerator system, golden hour box that your agency wants to use. Um, and then administration. So that's where I was talking earlier. There's a couple different, um, blood or sorry fluid warmers out there that are i'll say popular um there is the quantum flu fluid warmer from north american rescue uh quin flow and then the thermal angel uh, i have experience with thermal angel uh, we had them in the military um they aren't a large system but they're not a small system uh they work well uh but i believe their flow rates are as not as high as quin flow and the quantum um Quinflow uh, and Quantum are two totally different products. Uh, the Quinflow both heats and adds a little bit of infusion rate to the blood. Uh, Quinflow is a drip set with a fluid or with a warmer built in. Um, the built in warmer with that is uh, it's copper braided um, drip sets and it heats it from the point of coming out of the bag to output to body temperature. Interesting. Yes. Um, and Quinflow, I believe, will do three units on one charge, and Quantum will do two units on one charge. 
uh, both administering at more than 100 mLs per minute. Um, the next step is how are we going to get this in the field and how are we going to get it to the patient side? So I think the first step is to get it to the duty officers of the department. Um, typically duty officers are already uh, assigned on certain types of calls that this uh, intervention procedure is going to be warranted. Uh, so your um, high mechanism injury uh, trauma calls, uh, your shootings, your stabbings, um, not so much on your GI bleeds and maybe your ectopic pregnancies, but on your trauma calls, uh, typically they're going to be already on the card or they can be easily added to the card or uh, self-dispatch. Uh, and then they can meet on scene or in between you and the trauma center and do a handoff of blood and go right back into transporting and getting that blood on board. Um, and that that's kind of the basis of the logistics of it. Yeah. I have a couple questions. So, um, uh, I, I think it's a super neat, I think it's, uh, gener- I think it's a component that needs to happen, especially in our, uh, major metropolitan areas. Um, a couple questions regarding, uh, has there been work done, uh, to see what, critical mass of incidents there has to occur before there's a benefit to the community. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, it does make sense. Um, and I kind of now chiding myself, I do know of the study mm-hmm. and don't quote me on this. I think they figured out not the critical mass of incidents, but the cost per, I think they figured it out to be four to $5,000 per patient. Okay. And in their metrics, that was highly beneficial. So in terms of like, because we're giving pre-hospital blood, they're not going to progress to a a state of shock that then has to be more expensive? I believe. Okay. Uh, I'd have to look at that. We can throw it in the show notes. I have the study. I just didn't look at it beforehand. So that's on me. It is out there. Um, But uh, so for those that don't know, basically every medical procedure intervention has a cost tied to it. And they figure out is the cost worth the ben- or worth the risk or worth the implementation of it. Um, they found out in San Antonio it was well worth it. Um, yeah, because uh, what I I tried looking it up while you were talking, like the concept of a number needed to treat. Uh, uh, it's slightly different, but um, I couldn't find one for horrible blood. I'm probably uh, looking in the wrong place, but um, I think that would be interesting to look at because um, I like to whenever we're thinking about you know. Anything I, I'd like to be the, not the contrarian, but I want to put on the other hat to see what other folks, what are the low hanging fruit that folks are going to say for, you know, why we shouldn't do something. I think you highlighted one of them very well, which is like the the logistics part of it, which I think uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, it, it's dependent on the local system. Uh, and that inc- means getting buy-in from elected officials. So having a you know a nice short canned presentation explaining to folks why it would be helpful, and I think the evidence that you described would be a critical part of that. Um, the uh, uh, just real quick for a number needed to treat is through the University of uh, I believe it's through the University of Oxford. That's the page that came up. It's basically the number needed to treat is a number of patients you need to treat to prevent one additional bad outcome. For example, a death stroke, etc. For example, if a drug uh, has a need, number needed to treat a five, it means you have to treat five people with the drug to prevent one additional bad outcome. Um, the, the the hallmark for me was thr- uh, not thrombectomy. Um, yeah, thrombectomy. Thrombectomy's number needed to treat is like something insanely low. Yes. Um, compared to like aspirin, for example, which you know it's still pretty low, but. Um, yeah, so that that's what I mean when I say number needed to treat. Now, I, I feel like I used to be able to get through a thing that had like a table of most NNTs. I just can't find it. Kind of crazy. Um, but what kind of happened to, because like, I feel like we went from giving whole blood to giving anything that had parts of blood, and now we're back to whole blood. So like, that I guess, that, was there a paradigm shift? Like, what kind of happened? Um. So uh, this is going to be kind of a, uh, I guess pontification about it. Um, so a lot of, like I said in the beginning, a lot of this comes from uh, the military's experience in uh, the recent 
conflicts since the turn of the century. Um, so they found that to give components requires more logistics and more um, time and making sure that you have the right pieces. If you can give everything in one shot, then that was preferred. Um, now, when you look at the preferred, uh, the list of preferred um, fluids for resuscitation uh, in the uh, TCCC guidelines, uh, it's going to have whole blood at the top, but it's then followed by um, your one to one to one ratio, your platelets, your uh, freeze dried plasma. Um, all these different pieces. So if you can give at least some of it, it's going to help. But what we want to shoot for is everything. Um, so, and if you have to give one to one to one, that's going to be, uh, issues with just carrying or, um, having access to those pieces. Um, the donation process is not as easy. And another thing that factored in the military is, um, uh, some people may have seen something called a walking blood bank. So, if uh, someone comes into a medical treatment facility and they run out of blood, they are going to activate what's called a walking blood bank where they pull blood from the people at that location. Uh, so they're going to pre-designate who is what type of blood, so they're going to go to them first. But if need be, they can pull out what you know, I was talking about earlier, the Eldon cards, and figure out who can donate uh, to these patients or patient. Um, this system has been refined to the point that it can be done at the site of injury and has been done at the site of injury by some special operations medics. Mm -hmm. Um, and they found that the easiest way is if we can just get whole blood, we can get whole blood because you're not gonna be able to pull components off of someone in the heat of the moment. Mm -hmm. You're not gonna be able to pull just plasma and just platelets without some other equipment being needed, some other additional hazards. Uh, so whole blood was just found to be the best option when given. Um, they're looking, and this is in the military realm, they're looking at other options that are easily carryable, but they're also refining and slimming down the the uh, pieces to carry whole blood in the field so you can carry it on your back. Another question I had, uh, you talked about heroes in arms. What's the baseline that hospitals like get blood? Is like they buy it from like Red Cross or like how does that work? Uh, so I, once again, uh, something I'm not, totally familiar with but in um san antonio they buy it or have some kind of contract with south texas blood and tissue center okay um as you guys know i am a medic in a dc metro department uh in my research the supplier of blood to a lot of the dc metro area especially in my jurisdiction is inova uh their blood and tissue services okay um, does the hospital buy it? I don't know. Uh, mm -hmm. I do believe they do. Cause I, I, I feel as though I've seen a number attached to the price of a unit of blood before, but the American Red Cross, from what I understand, facilitates blood drives that brings blood into, and then is given to these tissue centers. Uh, I don't know if they are directly sold through or acquired through American Red Cross and then given to the hospitals, but, um, so what's interesting, I just Googled it while you were talking. And uh, so this is from hospitalmedicaldirector.com. So by a James Allen, MD. This was written, How Hospitals Get Blood for Transfusion, May 8th, 2019. Uh, and he says, uh, Whenever a person thinks of donating blood, the first words that come to their mind are Red Cross. However, the American Red Cross only supplies about 40% of transfused blood in the United States. Oh, well, this is interesting. What most people don't realize is that the U.S. uses a free market approach to maintain its blood supply with the result that there are dozens of different blood suppliers for our nation's hospitals and they compete with each other. They compete with each other. Um, um, most countries use a single government directed supplier for the blood supply, but the United States utilizes a network of nonprofit blood services that are overseen by federal regulations. Interesting. As of 2016, there were 786 registered blood establishments that collect blood blood plus 725 hospitals and non-hospital blood banks blood centers like you said account for 93 percent of all collected blood and hospital blood banks account for seven percent of collected blood uh, uh we do not transfuse as much blood as we used to which josh is single-handedly trying to fix uh, <laughs> uh let's see here um 
so who are all these blood okay so then it kind of goes down to who so who are these blood suppliers the american red cross the this is the most visible and publicly recognizable blood supplier and accounts for about 40 percent of the nation's uh, blood america's blood centers another company this is a network of more than 50 independent and local blood suppliers that supply about 50 percent of the nation's blood uh and then the armed services blood program this obviously supports the military and their beneficiaries uh let's see here uh oh this is actually really interesting too blood is a unique commodity is that it is almost entirely donated for free by volunteers the cost of blood is therefore primarily due to the expense of processing storage and distribution which you alluded to uh hospitals will typically contract with a particular blood supplier based on one uh per unit cost to the hospital and two quality of the service from the blood supplier because of the de declining demand for blood and because the U.S. has experienced a period of hospital consolidation into larger, large hospital systems, we don't need to go into that today, <laughs> that, can compete, uh, that can compete aggressively for blood pricing. The financial margin for most blood centers are razor thin and many operate on an, at an annual financial loss. Interesting. Mm. Um, because 92 to 95% of blood is transfused into hospital inpatients, Another thing Josh is trying to fix. The cost of blood is absorbed into the hospital's general expenses rather than being passed directly to the consumer. Oh, interesting. Oh, that would be really interesting. I wonder... Um, now we can talk about that. Uh, well, let me read that. This is because hospitals are paid by a DRG price that is fixed? Based on the... Okay, yeah. Based on an inpatient's diagnosis and the hospital gets paid the same whether one unit of blood is transfused or 20. That's fair. Um, let's see here. We already... This is actually really interesting. Oh, the guy used the same table you did for blood typing. Um, let's see. That's actually a really good article. Thank you, Dr. James Allen, MD. I'm a professor emeritus of internal medicine at the Ohio State University and former medical director of Ohio State University East Hospital. I like that. Cool. Um, that was that was actually really uh, informative. Uh, there's an article here from January 21st of 2022 that's from the Baltimore Sun that says Red Cross says blood supply is dangerously low. Here's how you can help in Maryland. Yeah. So I guess in Maryland, that prime the Red Cross is the big deal that does all the stuff. Cool. Okay. I guess, would we, I mean, say an EMS, would they have to contract directly with Red Cross? Or No, you said it would be part of a hospital. So the trauma center would probably just use their agreement, right? Uh, that, that would be the preferred, okay. um, because so part of this, like I said, with San Antonio, they, uh, they transport only to one, uh, two hospitals when they give blood, regardless of the etiology. Um, and that's what you would have to do within your program is figure out which hospitals are going to buy into this, uh, trauma centers or, um, or likewise. Um, and make sure that the blood that you are using is getting put back into their hospitals. Mm -hmm. So there, there is some issues uh, as we talked about offline with, um, uh, another medical director that hospitals may not like each other. So if you have two that you're transporting to and you want to bring them into the system of doing this and you're going to have issues with, um, them competing with each other or, whatever it is, mm -hmm. that might be a downfall of your system because mm -hmm. they're not willing to buy in. And, you know, so only um, a portion of your jurisdiction can get this intervention because, you know, it's too far to take them to the other one. You mm -hmm. know, Interesting. That, that or the other. Yeah. Um, so when you only have one hospital buy-in, it might be a little easier depending on the system. Um, and I... I've been meaning to try and, you know, when we start rolling this, hopefully sometime in the future in my, in my department, uh, talk to someone in San Antonio and be like, how do you do this exactly? Like, well, we can probably do that right now. Let's do it with the podcast. I mean, if anyone re wants to reach out from San Antonio. You should look at who you can reach out to. So, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, we can Google right now. Yeah. Well, let's be, yeah, let's be forward and see if we can get them on a Zoom call or something. Um, how would it work? Um, how do you envision like a Heroes of, in Arms working? Do you see it like jurisdictional, regional, state? Uh, it would be jurisdictional, I think. Okay. Uh, because um, I think it's going to be your easiest way to not only get your jurisdiction to buy into it at the medical director command level, but also to get your people to buy into it. Be like, hey, look. Uh, and that's, I, I believe that's one of the things that they said is like, hey, this blood could be used for you okay. if you need it. Like, we're not saying that your blood is going to get in you, but 
someone within our organization is there to help their brother or sister in need. Um, and that was, I believe, one of the selling points, and that would be a selling point in general uh, to get people to buy and to donate. Um, yeah, I, I think it would have to be jurisdictional. That's Yeah, very fair. Um, did you already talk about this three-year update from San Antonio that got published in 2022? Uh, June 24th, 2022. I know I heard about it, and I feel like I didn't read it. Let's see. Let's see what their abstract says. Uh, I don't care about that. I just want to see what the updates were. I just want conclusions. Conclusion. Um, since its inception, the regional LTO plus WB program continues to grow to support the needs of Southwest Texas. The integrated military and civilian trauma system has fostered collaboration on research and implementation of LTO plus WB programs between institutions in San Antonio and the surrounding region has led to the exchange of experience and expertise that benefit both military and civilian populations. The unique, this unique collaboration highlighted by the work in LTO plus WB can serve as a model for an integrated national trauma system. Uh, the pre-hospital system has exhibited extreme efficiency with low expiration rates while providing remote damage control resuscitation across an array of landscapes and conditions. The expansions of LTO plus WB beyond the realm of trauma to include non-emergency release transfusion in, in obstetric hemorrhage and non-trauma non hemorrhage has allowed for increased system efficiency while providing balanced resuscitation to an array of hemorrhaging patients. Specific protocols for LTO plus WP transfusion in non-trauma patients, women of childbearing age and obstetric patients, and pediatric patients remain an area of need, like you talked about before, and are of great interest for future research endeavors. The next frontier for LTO plus WP transfusion should incorporate these patient populations into pre-hospital and blood bank protocols across the country. These protocols must also account for the different mechanisms and physiological needs of the non-trauma population, including special considerations for age and comorbid conditions in specific populations that, they, that may benefit from LTO plus WB. LTO plus WB has the potential to provide life-saving, balanced, efficient resuscitation for all bleeding patients from trauma to obstetrics and everyone in between. An integrated regional system, such as the one in South Texas, can facilitate the delivery and transfusion of LTO uh, plus WB to patients in hemorrhagic shock and improve outcomes. That sounds like they, they're, they're getting even better outcomes than they were before. Yes. Uh, That's really neat. I, once again, don't quote me. I, I know their yearly transfusion rates are like 100 to 200, maybe even 300 units of blood a year are mm -hmm. getting transfused by units in the field um i don't know if that's bear county and harris county together if that's just san antonio but uh it's it's making waves down there and it's making waves for uh positive patient outcomes uh one of their success stories uh early on uh and if you guys uh, listen to this do any research and type in san antonio fire blood program or anything like that you'll find um uh, they had a uh, female who uh, experienced some kind of medical event uh, while driving her vehicle, uh, rolled over into a ditch, uh, was found in traumatic arrest, uh, and they administered blood at the patient's side in the ditch with her and had returned pulses, and she was a neurological intact uh, patient, walked out of the hospital, went back to living her life. Um, so much so that this was a success story. I believe uh, her father donated money for another unit to go in service with blood so um yeah it's it's i i am confident to say that this is going to be the next big thing next to actually i won't say what it, what i think it's next year i don't want to tie my my words to it yet but okay. whole blood i think is the next big thing in ems mm -hmm. uh, we just have to get over the logistical hurdle which is a big hurdle i'm not gonna knock it it is you know, there's, there are agencies across this nation that logistically will not be able to do this. Mm -hmm. But if your agency is able to, I think it is um, a disservice if you're not. So, 
Uh, yeah, this is. I, I just want to say the numbers real quick. This is interesting. To date, pre-hospital providers have transfu- transfused a total of 916 patients, with 76% of patients n equals 692 receiving a transfusion from ground EMS units, and 24% of patients n equals 222 receiving a transfusion from helicopter EMS units. Of these 916 patients, 527 were transfused after sustaining trauma and 193 underwent transfusion due to non-trauma hemorrhages. Uh, and they say such as you know, GI bleed uh, or, or hemorrhage from a dialysis access site. The remaining 196 patients consisted of transfusion for hemorrhage of undocumented etiology. I think this is cool, man. I think yeah. this is really cool. Um, another great story. This is from Harris County. Uh, the chief talked about how uh, they implemented it. They had, you know, for a non-traumatic type patient, they had a female who uh, was uh, a week or two postpartum, uh, was in the grocery store shopping, and uh, dropped and was very hypotensive, and they found that she was having uh, some intra- uh, abdominal bleeding that wasn't um, shown itself, and they gave blood in the field, had very positive outcomes with her. You know, and that's mm-hmm. just um, a lot of another thing a lot of people poo poo on it is transport times. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I heard it a week ago when this was brought up mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in a group, and uh, I, I think. Unless you are a true urban department and you are inundated with trauma centers in your catchment area, you'd be surprised at how long it is from patient contact to handoff at the hospital. Mm -hmm. My agency, large, numerous hospitals, uh, maybe not so much on the trauma centers in our our, uh, jurisdiction, 30 to 45 minutes from patient contact to handoff. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of time yeah. not getting what you need. Especially when we talk about increased hospital wait times. Yes. And I know that depending on what trauma system you work with, maybe you don't have that wait time. I, I, I'm cognizant of that. But I bet, like you just said, if people looked at the true, honest patient contact at transfer of care, true transfer of care, uh, we'd be astounded. Yes. Um, I, I wrote uh, two papers in college on blood. Um, Moose, I sent them to you. One was a, a term paper. One was a, uh, a grant proposal for a technical writing class. Um, and I used a story as my my attention grabber on both. Uh, it was the same story because uh, it's really stuck with me. And I think it really highlights uh, the need for something like this. Um, I ran a patient that was in a outpatient uh, surgery center. Went in for a hysterectomy. Well, during the hysterectomy, they uh, lacked her bladder. And mm. so we got called to transport from the outpatient facility to a hospital. Uh, it was a scene call. This is not interfacility. Uh, my agency does not do interfacility. But uh, we arrived there um, and they told us what had happened. Uh, when I showed up, her she not only was bleeding into her Foley, but we believe she was bleeding interdominally. Her Foley had 400 cc's of blood and urine. Mm-hmm. Uh, unknown amount into the abdomen. We had about a 15-minute transport from there to the hospital. And just to be curious, and just me being me, I was like, you know what? I'm going to take my time with my report this one time. I'm going to see how long it takes them to get cross-matched blood. From door to the time she got it was roughly 35 to 40 minutes and she bled out another 300 cc's in route to the hospital and who knows how much in in her abdominal now that wasn't all straight blood but it was was a lot of blood you know i'm sure some of that was urine but mostly blood and while that's not a trauma patient in some ways, it's a trauma patient, but mostly it's medical. Not our traditional trauma patient yes, that we're used to. Exactly. That's a patient that I think, and she was borderline. I, if I remember correctly, she was just over 100 systolic, maybe just over 100 on, ta- on heart rate. So she was like borderline, but she's someone that like, you know, had she just been inside the criteria, there's still nothing I could have done for her. But she's someone that would have benefited from blood. And if I remember correctly, she got one unit. They uh, ended up fixing the lack when she went home. Yeah. 
It's yeah. amazing what one unit of blood will do. So yeah, no, I I think it's definitely an interesting topic. I appreciate you doing the legwork on the research. This is really good. I just wanted to, uh, because we mentioned the, the paper, it's in the, the journal Transfusion, um, the, and the t- name of the paper is um, uh, the, regional whole pro- the Regional Whole Blood Program in San Antonio, Texas, a three-year update on pre-hospital and in-hospital transfusion practices for traumatic and non-traumatic hemorrhages. It's by Braverman et al., uh, published June 24th, 2022, as I mentioned in the journal, of, uh, in the tr- journal Transfusion. Um, yeah, man, this was a solid talk. You want to finish this out? Sure. Uh, thanks for listening wherever you are, whatever time it is. Uh, make sure you like, subscribe, do whatever you need to do. Make sure you hear when we're coming out with podcasts. Uh, great content coming uh, in the future. Some uh, awesome opportunities that hopefully we have some more information to share on here shortly. And wherever you are, keep on listening and be safe. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.